0: One of the things that humanity mostly wants is safety and security. And we try to find it in many different ways. We try to find it through sometimes job security, through money, through real estate, through family, health or health insurance or whatever it is that we think might give us some security. <coughs> and yet we know very well that none of this provides any real security. We still don't feel safe none of it is permanently stable all of it can change we try to make it as stable as possible and if we're lucky we find a little bit of stability but even so we even though we might find that we still don't feel at ease because underlying even though we might not think about it we have fear, fear that we're not going to be looked after. We can find, eventually, one security, and that's Nibbana. It's totally secure, because there's nobody there to be insecure. But it takes a while to get there. It's a spiritual journey which we undertake and have been undertaking here in this course, which might take us to the first station, so to say, or wherever we land. On the way there, we can find security in the mind. By committing ourselves and giving ourselves to what are called the Three Jewels and taking refuge in them. Refuge is a shelter. They shelter us. And because they do that, if we understand how they do it, then we have a feeling. Of protection. One of the words of the Buddha is the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. If we practice the Dhamma obviously we are protected by it because it's strictly goodness and that protects us. The longer we practice the more protected we are. Putting the mind in that direction helps the mind to feel at ease, to feel safe. Safe from the worries and fears that beset all human beings. Fear is a human condition because we are totally aware whether we want to or not, that there's always some danger for us. There is danger of dying. We mightn't even admit that. There's certainly danger of being physically hurt. There's danger of being emotionally hurt, but there's also danger of emotionally hurting someone. And there's always the danger of slipping on the path and making bad karma. We know all that, whether consciously or subconsciously. And therefore, the mind has a hard time being contented, feeling at ease, having joy. It's not easy to find that joy because of all those underlying fears. It's not difficult to find sensual pleasure. Some of it costs a bit of money and the rest of it is quite free, but it doesn't last and it does not really fulfill. So to find An ease in the mind is, of course, also a foundation for meditation. It's that famous catch-22. We want to become peaceful and contented through meditation, but we've got to start the meditation by having already some ease in the mind. One of the best ways of getting that basis is looking at Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a shelter from danger, the dangers which I have enumerated, the dangers which are connected with our emotions and our instincts and impulses. Naturally, there's always the body that can have some mishap. But if our mind is quite at ease and clear, that isn't going to worry us too much. Refuge as a shelter concerns in the first instance the enlightenment principle embodied in the person of the Buddha. We do not take refuge in that person because that person no longer exists, all other stories notwithstanding. That person has had parinibbana, which is the return to the matrix of existence, to the ground of being without remainder. But he has left a legacy behind. And this legacy has two aspects. The first is, of course, the teaching, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it also, there's another legacy. And that legacy is the enlightenment energy which still exists. I'll tell you about a personal experience of that so that you can get an idea what I mean when I say enlightenment energy because the word energy is being banded about so much that nobody really knows anymore what is meant. In 1987, I was in India for the first international conference for Buddhist women and Buddhist nuns, and we had arranged (coughs) to make a journey to all the holy places of the Buddha's uh, lifetime after the conference. So there were 80 people of possibly more than 20 nationalities in two huge Indian buses, (laughs) <laughs> in typical Indian weather and we went from Bodgaya where we'd had the conference which is of course the place where he attained enlightenment and which is full of pilgrims of all denominations, not only Buddhist to his birthplace Lumbini just across the Nepalese border to the Jetta Grove, Anata Pindikas monastery, which I have mentioned to you, where he gave 25 rents retreats of discourses, where the ruins of the Buddha's Kuti can be seen. We went to Sarnath, to what used to be called Isipatana, the deer park, where the the Mahabodhi Buddhist Society has built up a new deer park with deer in it and a very beautiful temple and some very nice gardens where the Kuti also can be found, which was the Buddha's very first abode after enlightenment. Now the deer park at Isipatana was the place where he gave his very first discourse after enlightenment. And there is a marker there where people think it took place. Whether it did or not, it's impossible now to guarantee. The first discourse he gave was the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, which means the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. And it concerns the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. And having been to all these places, we then went to Kusinara. And Kusinara, it's a very small village today, is a place where he died and was cremated. And a stupa was built over the cremation place. The stupa is still there. It's, of course, ruined. It's sort of half of it is there. The upper part which has a spire, is no longer there, but the lower part is there. And as it is traditional in Buddhist uh, traditions, one circumambulates such a stupa, particularly one of this kind, which has such enormous meaning for all Buddhists. So one goes with one's right shoulder towards that which is to be revered which is the reason why the robe is worn over the left. And in the hot countries, in the monks' tradition, the right shoulder is left bare. Like shaking hands without gloves, same thing, reverence. So I started going around this stupa, not knowing whether there was anybody behind me or not, because everybody just did what they liked. And as I started walking around this stupa, and thinking of its significance, I started smelling sandalwood. Very beautiful smell, sandalwood. Anybody who's ever smelled it will know that it's beautiful. And I thought, oh yes, some people must have bought sandalwood incense, because it's very common in India to stick that in at the bottom of a stupa. And I looked around me, behind me, and there was nobody there, not a single person. So I thought, oh, well, there must be some burning around this stupor. But there wasn't anything. It was just rubble because it is falling apart. So I started walking a little further, and the smell became stronger and stronger. And by that time, one of my friends from Sri Lanka came near, was also doing the same, and came near to me and said to me, can you smell the beautiful sandalwood smell? And I said, yes, I can. Have you got incense? Anybody, one of your friends no, nobody had any incense. Well, we then, there were five of us that smelled it at this standing together. We then said, or I remembered, that any monk or any enlightened monk particularly would have been burned on a park of sandalwood. So we decided that that was what the smell was about. There's no guarantee that this was it, but we thought that that's what must be. And then we c- continued walking around this stupa and I could feel an enormous in- energy coming through my feet. And I thought, I wonder no. what this is. And I kept walking and this it was like electricity Coming through my feet. And it energized the whole body. And it certainly was like what all, many of you have now experienced the very first entry into the meditative absorptions, that feeling that really energizes the body. And I thought, well, it's all right, maybe I'm getting very meditative. And then I came to the end of my. Um, round trip around the stupa and lo and behold all 80 people were sitting on the ground in meditation and I knew at least half of them and of those that I knew at least half had never meditated in their lives there were some children there um, around the age of 10 to 14 they all sat with their legs crossed in meditation. So we all sat down, the other uh, five ladies and myself, and we meditated. And then, gently and slowly, after a while, we got up. And then one of the ladies said to me, it's very interesting, isn't it? She said, I felt this enormous energy here, but I didn't feel a thing in Lombini. And I said, that's right, I didn't feel anything either in Lombini, where he was born, and I felt it here. And then it occurred to me, and I said this, you know, in Lumbini, he was born, but he was not the Buddha. He was a a bodhisattva. He was on the way to enlightenment, but he wasn't enlightened. But here, he was at the peak of his enlightenment. So the other ladies, I only talked to those five because they were my students and friends from Sri Lanka, felt exactly what I had felt, exactly that same energizing and that same feeling that one was actually going into a very strong meditative state but it had a little difference to what just sitting down here and meditating there was something other than that there was a a vibration in the f- ground and in the air which you couldn't see or touch but which m- made us feel those that I talked to myself i don't know what the other Seventy-five, made us feel as as if we were being drawn into a an atmosphere that was transcendental, and none of us, neither these others nor myself, are given to imagination. So from that, and then later, I talked to friends of mine in Sri Lanka who have taken this trip also because this is a very famous uh, journey for particularly, I suppose, Theravan Buddhists because the Buddha did say this, that it is of great merit to go and visit the places where he was born, attained enlightenment, gave the first discourse and died. So this is... Um, Um, everyone who can afford to do this um, financially tries to do that. So many people in Sri Lanka have been there. And I talked to a few of my friends there and two of them had exactly the same experience. So from this I deduce that the enlightenment experience is something so strong that its vibration remains in the human realm and we can actually connect to it if we purify ourselves enough and open ourselves enough to it enlightenment is not a myth it's not something for a genius it's something where the purification of heart and mind has the ability to let go Nibbana is the experience of not clinging, not clinging to myself. That's what I was referring to when I said the enlightenment energy which is with us, which protects us, but particularly also the enlightenment principle which the Buddha embodied. Now, the embodiment of that Enlightenment principle, is within each person. The spark is within. And it's up to us to find that. Now, the spark is impersonal. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's universal. And because of that, if we direct ourselves towards that, we can take refuge in it. We certainly do not take refuge in a statue, no matter how beautiful, no matter how big, or how small. Very small. It's my traveling Buddha. (laughs) Goes around the world with me. the statue is nothing but a reminder. It's just like one has the photos of one's parents or children or uh, one's friends in one's house. Just a reminder. Now in the days of the Buddha, photos were not possible. In the days of the Buddha, even statues were not possible. The first statue of the Buddha is in the Sanat Museum and it is just about 300 years after the parinibbana of the Buddha. The only thing that he said one should build were stupas. And everybody know what a stupa is? Anybody not know what a stupa is? No. They're all pretty easternized already. So that he said, and they should be built in order to house the relics of enlightened masters that was his instruction but uh, the uh, Buddha statues were a later addition and they are very much culturally influenced every culture sees some a certain beauty in something and that beauty is then embodied by the artist in the statue that they make the first and only time that I ever saw an English looking Buddha was in London at the FWBO very beautiful standing statue but in Sri Lanka all Buddha statues look Sri Lankan in India they look Indian in Thailand They have a certain beauty ideal and uh, they're very elongated. So every country has their own idea of beauty. None of it is what the Buddha looked like. It's only what we like to make it beautiful. So we have shelter and refuge in the fact that the enlightenment principle is alive. It exists. We can connect to it. And if we do, all dukkha is finished. The way the Buddha expressed it is, there is a deed but no doer. There is suffering but no sufferer. There is a path but no one to enter it. There is Nibbana but no one to attain it. When we give up me, we get nearer and we can get there. It has to be done through actually feeling it. But first, it can be done through actually wanting to do it. The other legacy which the Buddha left for us is, of course, the Dhamma. And that is the most important part of it. He left the teaching behind it. You've heard some of it. Obviously, in six and a half days, we can't hear or talk about all of it. But we don't even have to know all of it. If we practice that which we know, we will eventually find the pathway within our own heart. The Dhamma is the most precious legacy that he's left behind, and it is still in its powerful state. In fact, there's a prophecy in one of the commentaries, not by the Buddha, and it says like this. It says, after the parinibbana of the Buddha, the Dhamma will exist for 5,000 years. And then the words Anicca dukkha Anatta will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises, which is eons away. The next Buddha is supposed to be called Matraya Buddha, which is love, loving kindness, Sanskrit word for metta. And eons are described as a granite mountain, one mile high, one mile wide, one mile deep and one mile long. And every hundred years, a little bird comes along and it sharpens its beak on that granite mountain. And when the granite mountain has disappeared, one eon has gone by. Within those 5,000 years, right in the middle, there are supposed to be 100 years, during which time the Dhamma flourishes and more and more people will have access to it. And then it starts going downhill again until it completely disappears. We are at this moment in the 34th year of those 100 years. This is to arouse some vega. Some vega is urgency. To do it now. Because if we don't do it now, we may not be around when the Dhamma actually exists. And also to let us know that we're having a magnificent chance. And this is quite true. The Dhamma has spread far more and far more into the world than it ever has, particularly because of the fact that the Tibetans were leaving their country because of the occupation of the Chinese and so their teaching became available. There's a prophecy in Tibet which was made by Padmasambhava, which was in the seventh century of our time. And this prophecy says, when the iron eagle flies and horses run on wheels, the Tibetan people will be scattered over the earth like ants and the Dhamma will go to the red man. Well, iron eagle obviously are our airplanes the horses run on wheels, well you know horsepower, we've got that on four wheels. The Tibetan people have been scattered over the earth and we are the red men because we've got pink cheeks so they think we look red. So that has happened. And the other prophecy seems to have some significance also for us because if we had lived maybe Fifty years ago, we might not have had access to the Dhamma in its present form. It has existed in England for just over a hundred years. The um, Pali Text Society was the instrument for bringing it to England, but it was strictly an intellectual enterprise, a translation uh, work in those days. It's not that long that it has become a practice. So the prophecies seem to be correct. And what they do for us is they tell us that we are in a very fortunate position. So the Dhamma is alive for us, and it can protect us. It can give us refuge if we live accordingly. Now, it does not give us shelter if we think of it as something interesting, nice, beautiful, oriental, Buddhist, um, whatever we might think of it, having come from Tibet or Sri Lanka or Thailand or Japan or wherever it has come from and connecting with all the cultural embellishments, it can only protect us if we actually practice it. And that is the part of the practice which is often misunderstood, that people say they practice When they sit on the pillow, that's not practicing, that's sitting on the pillow. Practice means that we do not forget the Dhamma in our daily living and try to remember as much of it as we can under all circumstances, particularly the trying ones. If we remember it when everything goes well, well that's nice too. But when things become difficult and we then remember it and act accordingly, we will see the relief and we will see the help and protection we're getting. Like when we really want something badly, so badly that we're getting upset about it and we can't seem to get it and we're dropping the wanting, we can see the upset is gone. It's wonderful. What a relief. It's like getting rid of a hundred-pound backpack, just putting it down. What a wonderful ease that brings. And then we know what is meant by finding refuge in the Dhamma. That is our safety, our security, when we practice it which, of course, concerns also the precepts. They protect us. When the Buddha said, who sees me sees the Dhamma, it is connected with the story of his time. There was a monk amongst his uh, disciples who was so attached to the Buddha, loved him so much, that he ran after him all the time like a little puppy dog, never left him, let him out of his sight. And one day this monk became ill and had to lie in bed. And he was lying there moaning and crying. And his fellow monks came to see him and said, why are you moaning and crying? You're not that ill. It's not that bad, is it? And he said, no, no, that's not why I'm moaning and crying. I'm moaning and crying because I now can't see the Buddha because I'm lying in bed. And so the monk said, oh, that's all right. We'll tell him about that. He'll come and visit you. So they went to see the Buddha and told him about this problem. So he said he would come. And he came to visit this monk. And, of course, the monk immediately perked up and was very happy. And so the Buddha said to him, who sees me sees Dhamma. Who sees Dhamma sees me. He was telling this monk not to look for the person, not to look for that one person that's going to do it for me. Nobody's going to do it for me. When I see the Dhamma in my own heart, I see the Buddha not as a person but as the enlightenment principle which overrides all persons and all material form. And when I actually see the Buddha, an enlightened person, all I see is the Dhamma. I don't see that form. So he was trying to tell this monk to go beyond that outer form. And this is one of the tenets of the Buddha's teaching. Do not hang on to a person do not hang on to a teacher do not have the attachment and the clinging to some some person that's now the one that's going to actualize it for you such things do not do not exist you can love the teacher but one doesn't have to depend on that we don't depend on the teacher We have to do it ourselves. So when we see the enlightenment principle in the form, all we see is the Dhamma. And this is what we actualize within. We eventually become the Dhamma. At first the Dhamma is all words. And then it's restrictions and um, ways of doing things, methods. But eventually it becomes one's own life. And then the protection is full because there isn't anybody there that needs protection anymore. It's just the Dhamma. And the third of the three jewels, in Pali, the T, Saranan, the T is three. The uh, three jewels a third one, Sangha. Now, Sangha is a word that we have um, diluted in the West. It has a very specified meaning. The terminology in the Buddhist um, uh, teachings have a very specialized meaning for words. That doesn't mean we can't use these words in other ways also, but we should know what their original meaning is. In the original meaning, the Sangha are monks and nuns, which are ordained in the Buddha's Sasana, in the Buddha's dispensation. But in this, where there are the three jewels, where it's one of the jewels, the Sangha means the enlightened ones. Those that followed the Buddha's teachings became enlightened and propagated it. It doesn't mean any monk or nun because we can have plenty of unenlightened monks and nuns. They're just Mm -hmm. trying. So it has nothing to do with being a jewel. They are a field of merit, it says, but being a jewel means being enlightened. Our refuge in that gives us a very um, strong Foundation again because first of all it shows us that it's possible there have been many people who have become enlightened following the Buddha's teachings it's not the case that one can only become enlightened following the Buddha's teachings, that's not the case there have been enlightened beings even in this century who have followed nobody's teachings or even different teaching. But in this case where we use the Dhamma, which is law, law of nature and Buddhist teaching, we're talking about those people who became enlightened using that. So we have an an understanding that there have been many people who have been able to do that. So there's no reason why we can't, whether it happens this lifetime or next, That's not the criteria we can. And also, it's gratitude. Gratitude to those people that they have propagated the Dhamma for us. Because if it had rested only with the Buddha, it would long be lost. There would be nothing left of it. It then went to his disciples, and from his disciples, as I mentioned earlier it went into writing and from the writing it went into translation and then also all these centuries it has been taught. It's not been just preached, it's also been taught and that's the whole difference, not just preachers but teachers. And with that, we have a, a, a debt of gratitude towards those people who have given us this opportunity. And if we put ourselves into their company by taking refuge, we are in the best possible company with noble friends whether we know any of them or not, is also not so important because we may get to know teachers. But the jewels, those three jewels, if we are actually connected to them, we have the teaching, the enlightenment, energy, and we have the most noble friends that we could possibly find anywhere. That's why taking refuge is a great help on our pathway. It helps us to see things from a platform of spiritual life rather than from the platform of worldly life. Now we have to continually return to worldly life, there's no doubt about it, and do our best with it. But we do not have to retain the worldly perspective. We can live worldly life with a spiritual perspective. Together with taking refuge goes taking the precepts. Taking the precepts is not a thing that we can never, never break we are training ourselves to keep them. Should we break any of them, we need enough self-honesty to say so to ourselves. I've broken that one. And then quietly and patiently take it again. If there is a monk or nun available, take it with them. If they're not available, take it by yourself. It's like making a new New Year's resolution. Most people have to make the new one latest on the 3rd of January. So, it's the same with this. Maybe we last a little longer on them until it becomes so habitual that it's no longer a problem. It is said in the Pali Canon that only a person who has had stream entry which means the first personal glimpse of Nibbana the first not glimpse the first personal experience of Nibbana is one who will never break a precept anymore because the knowledge and viewpoint of him or herself has completely changed at that time So until then, we are in danger of breaking one one of them, which is fine. We should see that danger. It should make us even more um, filled with urgency to practice. There is no sin attached to breaking a precept. There's only karmic resultant, which we accept, to take upon us at the time when we break it. And if we break it because we haven't been mindful, well, the same thing. Retaking the precepts is, in Buddhist countries, a matter of course. People take refuge and precept every time they come into contact with a monk or a nun. It's not a matter of great, um, of a great festivity, but it is a matter of reminding oneself over and over again. For instance, in the monastery or in the nunnery, when the people bring the food for the monks and nuns, it is traditional and customary that the head monk or head nun gives precept and refuge to the people who have brought the food and then gives them some uh, dumber, um talk to urge them and arouse their energy to practice. So taking the precept and refuge is something one does over and over again. It's not a one time matter. It is something like repeating to oneself but very very favorably in company what one actually wants to do if one does it only by oneself doesn't have the same effect it's um, when we say it out loud in front of other people we are making more of a statement. It uh, can be compared to getting married in front of witnesses. We're making a statement: I want to have this relationship and be faithful and responsible for this relationship. Making a public statement. Whether it works or not a second question. But here is the same thing: we're making a public statement. And that public statement helps us. It helps us to support our determination, the willpower, the willpower to do this properly. With respect to that, I want to explain what we usually have on a shrine, in my tradition, as a minimum, We can have any number of other embellishments, but the Theravadan shrines are usually more or less simple, unless the person who is in charge of the place likes a lot of decoration. It's up to them. The first thing is the Buddha statue, which I've already explained. We do not pay homage to a statue. We pay homage to the Enlightenment principle, which this depicts as a symbol. We have candles, two or three the Buddha statues, particularly those from Thailand, that have a sort of um, on the top of the head like a little spire sticking up. that's the same symbol. That's the light. And the other thing are flowers, and they're not strictly for beautification. They're for remembering impermanence. If we put them in water, they last a few days, usually no more than one, at the most two. If we put them on the shrine, as you will do without water, They're going to be totally wilted tonight. They might even be wilted already. We are no different. We are here today and gone tomorrow. We wilt very quickly. The time element is arbitrary. And that is the symbolism which is of the greatest importance. Remembering to make the best of each moment, to practice now and not later. And then we have incense, which is also not in order to make the room smell nice, but it has symbolism, namely that the emanation from a totally virtuous person has the beautiful aroma which goes far and wide like the aroma of incense sticks which means that for instance, the Buddha's vibration, which I have already talked about, are still with us and noticeable. And if we are totally virtuous, then our vibration will also be of benefit to others. That is a symbolism for the incense. And very often, our practice is to light three incense sticks, one for Buddha, one for Dhamma, one for Sangha. But here we're each going to light one, otherwise they're going to be too many, too much smoke. <laughs> we sometimes have three candles, which is also Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, but very often only two, because that is very often the case that there are two candlesticks. When we take refuge and precept, now how we're going to do it, I will explain what we're going to do. Each person who wants to do it brings their flower, if they have brought it, and offers it to the Buddha on the uh, top of the table, lays it down, remembering his or her own impermanence. We will have the candles lit, and each person takes an an incense stick and lights it from the candles and puts it in the little bowl here with the sand, remembering his or her own virtue. And then, using this pillow, this mat over there, three prostrations, one for Buddha, one for Dhamma, one for Sangha. Remembering the commitment to practice. These prostrations are a way of showing to oneself that there is something much greater than one's own mind and body. And we are part of that. And so we actualize this and manifest that by making this commitment in the heart that we're actually going to have reverence and devotion to those three jewels by following the instructions and practicing. Now everybody can have in their mind at that time something that will help them To have that connection, it's making a personal connection. This is what is usually called in the Tibetan tradition, transmission. We don't use that word in this tradition at all. We say personal connection and everybody has to make it him or herself. If we don't open up for the connection, nothing is going to come in. It's like when the radio transmitter for the radio station is transmitting what we neither have a radio or having one, haven't turned it on, or having turned it on, are not on the right station, we're not going to hear a word. We have to open, and then that happens, the connection. In our tradition, the way to prostrate is called the five-point prostration because five points of the body go on the floor. Namely, we do it kneeling down on, on the knees and the five points that go on the floor is the forehead, the two hands and the two elbows and they go on the floor. And as we do this, we also, you may have seen me do it, we very often, which is a personal choice, do like this at the, with the third one, with the last one. We touch this, this, and this, which means commitment with mind, speech, and body. The three doors. We only have three doors. That's how we act in the world. We think, we speak, and we do things. So these are our three doors. And we often do this as showing our devotion to the uh, teaching that we want to do it completely with these three doors. So at the end of the third one, of the third time of the prostation, we very often do make this movement. So each person who wants to do that, can come here and do that. Then we sit back, we sit back on the seat, the person who's been up and next one comes. And when everybody has done so, I will chant the refuge and precept in Pali and then repeat it in English. And then you repeat it after me in English. It is essential that one does this in one's own language. In fact, the Buddha said one should learn the Dhamma in one's mother tongue, if it's available. Because the mother tongue, just as the word implies, has feeling behind it. There are certain words which are fine, we can look them up in the dictionary, they're very well explained, but the meaning that we put on the words has a um, certain connotation because we have heard it in certain circumstances so we say this in English I will repeat it in English after the Pali and then you repeat it in English after me and while we do that while we're doing this we sit in what is called Anjali which means the hands like this which is the greeting also in the East and it's a very nice and interesting greeting because it means I'm greeting you from my heart. And here it means this is coming from my heart. Our shaking hands in some countries is also interesting because it's supposed to have come from the fact that we wanted to show we don't have a weapon in our hand. So these uh, things are old traditions and having like sitting like this is coming from the heart. All those people who are taking refuge in precept naturally will sit like this. Those who do not take refuge in precept can sit like that also to support the uh, commitment that the others are making in order to help them with it and think of them with loving kindness and compassion. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasam. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasam. Namo mo Bhagavato ta sa bhag a I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhamma Saranagga Chami, I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sangha Saranagga Chami, I take refuge in the Sangha. I take <clears throat> Do te ampi budham sarananga charming. For, For the second time I take refuge in the Buddha. Do te ampi dammang sarananga charming. For the second time I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sanghang Chami For the second time I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time I take refuge in the Sangha. Tateyampi bodhang saranangachami For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Tateyampi For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. Ta te ampi sanghang sarananga charming. For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. Panati patta ve ramani Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adina na dana ve sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake, I, undertake I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Mussava padam samadhi I undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech. I undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech. Suramiriamajapamadetana ve Padam I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. Tisaranena sadhim panchasilang dammang sadhukang surakitang katwa pamadena Sum per data, that means may the taking of refuge and precepts give you happiness and much benefit in your lives. You are now well equipped to go out into the world, which you will do very shortly after lunch. And whatever you can take with you from this course, anything at all, will be helpful. If you are getting the tapes and continue to listen to them, to remind you, it will help you to continue the practice. In our daily lives, mindfulness, paying attention to ourselves, introspection, knowing what we're on about, recognizing when we're on an ego trip, because it's definitely going to make us unhappy, and trying to do something about it. Recognition, no blame change. There's no blame attached to any of this. There are four billion people on this little globe and they're all doing it. With the exception of a handful maybe. So who's there to blame? That's just human nature. But human nature does not give us the fulfillment that we want. So we try to transcend human nature. One time the Buddha was sitting outside a village and it is said that his skin was very radiant and his eyes were shining and so a wanderer came by and said to him who are you? Are you a deva? A deva is a higher being than a human being and the Buddha said no and uh, so then the wanderer said well are you a man? no well are you god? no what are you then? said I'm the Buddha I'm enlightened so it's neither this nor that we can transcend human nature where we're going We'll only find out when we're there. But on the way there, we can have so many benefits that it will be possible to stay on the path. Obviously, we're going to have to keep on meditating. How much? How long? Okay, an hour in the morning, an hour at night. For those who have only just started meditating and there are some of you who've only just started or doing it very short time. Start with 30 minutes. 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night, or whenever your time allows. And then add to it. Every two weeks, five more minutes or something like that until you arrive at an hour. It's certainly better than the other way around. And the other way around... Is unfortunately not uncommon. One gets all fired with enthusiasm and comes home, says, Well, minimum one hour in the morning, one hour at night. And then, of course, we know what happens. One day there isn't any time, and the next day somebody rings up, and the third day there has some very urgent business, and the fourth day it's uh, too cold or too hot or whatever it may be. We all have that difficulty as our third hindrance. So what we do is we do the possible. If we can arrange for an hour in the morning and in the evening, if our time allows, if we don't have so many duties, then we should definitely aim for that. If we are a beginner, as I said, work up to it. have a place in your house where you meditate. A corner. Doesn't have to be a whole room. A corner, just as much as this takes up. And put a flower vase there, or a Buddha statue, or a picture, or nothing. Whatever you prefer. But keep the pillow there. So that early in the morning you don't have to race around the house trying to find the pillow again. We don't remove the chairs from the dining room or the towels from the bathroom or the saucepans from the kitchen. We know where they are and they remain there. So since we do look after the body in that manner, we cook for it and we eat it and we wash it and we also go to bed and keep the bed there with the bedding on top of it. Well, let's keep this one thing that the mind needs also in its place. Leave the pillow there so that in the morning, maybe you don't want to turn on the lights on because there's somebody else in your house who doesn't meditate, that you can find your way to your pillow and sit down on it without any difficulty. Then get yourself, if you haven't got one, a little timer or a little alarm clock, whatever you have, and set it for the appointed time that you've made up your mind to meditate because if you don't you're going to sit there and you're going to meditate, meditate, meditate and then the mind says well that's at least an hour could be more (laughs) and then you get up and you go to the kitchen what does it say? 15 minutes (laughs) so of course now being in the kitchen you don't return to the pillow because now it's time to make some tea so Have that little thing there and wait for it to ring. Everybody waited for this little bell to ring. First few days probably thought, oh, I'm sure she's forgotten to ring the bell. (laughs) But still, one waited for it. So this is essential because that timing becomes, of course, quite um, quick for us to sit when we're concentrated. The hour goes like nothing, but if we are not concentrated, it might seem like a lifetime. So use your timer to have your um, discipline, to, to have the under, the, um, the support for your discipline. The self-discipline is an extremely important aspect, and as the word says, it can only be done by oneself. Somebody wakes you up early in the morning and shakes you and says, hey, come on, go and meditate. And then the one that's shaking you goes back to bed. That's not going to be conducive to you going to meditate. So one has to have the self-discipline. If you have anybody in your house who also meditates, and you can do it together, so much the better. You can reinforce your (coughs) own determination, which is lovely if you have that good fortune. Most people haven't. Most people are on their own and um, have to meditate on their own. For that, it's extremely helpful to have at least once a week a group with which to meditate. It's a support system which cannot be overrated because... First of all, you get together with people who are doing the same thing. In other words, you're not looked upon as punishing yourself for nothing or uh, having got in touch with some odd sect or um, doing something um, just to get out of working or whatever else people think about it. It has become a little more accepted meditation, but in the mainstream of society and I presume England's no different from any other country, it still isn't considered to be the thing to do. So we do need the support system, and the support system are the friends who are doing the same thing. Now, if you haven't got a group where you live, start one. Two people are a group. Now, there were some people here, and I'd like to say that right this minute because I'm thinking of it, who said that they had nobody to meditate with. And actually there were two people from Bristol who said that. Would the two people from Bristol like to raise their hand so that they can meet afterwards and discuss it with each other? Have they disappeared meanwhile? And there was another one, there were two What happened to the second person from Bristol? <laughs> one person did leave her language. One person left. Okay, well, maybe that's the one from she Bristol. Left. So there's only, only one person from Bristol. Well, that's not going to make a group. But uh, there were also some people from London and uh, several, and they also said that they would like to get together so would the people from London like to raise their arms and get together after we finish and discuss matters. There's one there, two here. We actually had a group. You had one. Dissolved. Well, start a new one. <laughs> start a new one. Well, those of you who already have a group I don't have to search for a new one, but those of you, like, that's, I think there were four now from London, meet afterwards and discuss whether you live in a, a manageable distance from each other and what you can do about it. Um, as we have, even if it's a very small group, it's extremely helpful. There, there is a small group in York Leah has a small group, but I don't suppose there's anybody else here from York. Is no, there? Stuart. Oh, Stuart. Yes, of course. Well, he's already m- marked down for your group. <laughs> 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 so anybody else who hasn't got a group and would like one, what what I'm town? Near Plymouth. Near Plymouth. Okay. Anybody from Plymouth? Mm. Nothing. Ah, such a small country. It's still too big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a bit way up north, isn't it? Where is that near? Edinburgh? Where is it near? What is the biggest near? Well, that's, that's a county. It's, uh, there is somebody here from Edinburgh, but that's not close enough, is it? It's about um, or so. 80 80. About Saint-Yves? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) 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 well if you if you're um, if it's important to have a group you might have to drive that far if you have a car in Germany in my center We have an open evening every Wednesday evening, and we live way out in the sticks. And uh, in German we say, where the fox and the rabbit say good night to each other. And it actually is the truth. We have a fox and a rabbit coming to visit us at different times. So we're way out in in the middle of nowhere. We live in a village of four houses. So, and uh, every Wednesday night it's open house, and there are several people, three I can think of right now, who do drive about two hours to come because they can't find anything nearer to them that they would enjoy doing. They're, so they're determined. So sometimes that does become necessary until one maybe finds something a little closer. If one doesn't feel that one needs a group, Well, that's all all right, too. But it is a great help. And the thing is that with a group also, one can, and especially if one's had the same teaching and also the same teacher, one can use some of the tapes sometimes in the evening and refresh one's memory and then maybe talk about it with each other. Not argue, but talk about it with each other. And... uh, mentioned some of the things that may have been workable for oneself. In other words, have a Dhamma discussion with each other. We don't have to have some Dhamma expert around for that. We can have a Dhamma discussion so that our way of conversation actually becomes more habitually directed in that direction, which is a very good, another very good reason for having a group and actually a Buddhist directory? Yes. Yes. The the only problem is, of course, you can't try them all out, uh, but the thing to do is, if you do live in an outlying area, and you might find one in there, I think you can get the Buddhist directory from the Buddhist society in London. Mm. It's quite fat. So fat. It's the fattest directory of any country. England has the most centers. We're always marveling at it. Thinking, where they get all these centers from? <laughs> Germany has a very thin one, little one, like that. So um, it's a it's a great choice, and if you are in an outlying area, it can be extremely helpful to to look it up. So that can be a, a help. The other thing is about reading, reading books. <coughs> One of the things we can read are these things going in your eyes. Yes, mine are too, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And put it under the window. That's it. we don't want to remove the good aroma of your virtue yet. It's petering out anyway. So it has to be always renewed, the virtue. We can't just have it once. We have to do it all the time. Books. If you want to know what the Buddha said, it's all available. The cheapest and best book that I've ever found of this tradition are available from the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy, Sri Lanka. There are um, several catalogues of that BPS here uh, in, I think they're in the lounge room or I don't know exactly where they are. And you will find in them the most extensive choices of The Buddha's actual words translated by the most knowledgeable Western monks. Most, many of them are translated by Venomal Nanaponika, who has been a monk in Sri Lanka for the last 50 years. He's German. He's now 87. He's from my hometown. He is the Western expert on Pali and he was the founder of the Buddhist Publication Society which now sends books to 90 countries. The books are available in England through Wisdom and through the London Vihara. Both are mentioned in the back of that catalog. So they could be rung up and asked whether they have any particular um, book that you're looking for. If they don't have it, you're probably better off to order it yourself because for them to order it for you, they will not order it specially for you. They will wait till they have a whole batch of orders. So it might take quite a long time. So if they have it, just get it from them, either Wisdom and London or Lon Vihara. If they don't have it, order it yourself. In the catalogue are given exact instructions how to order books. They're the most inexpensive Dhamma books available and they are the best translations. They are not only translated but they also have the explanation and commentary of the translator either by Venerable Nanaponika, Venerable Narada who was my preceptor um, Venerable Nanatiloka who was the teacher of Venerable Nanaponika also German Bhikkhu Bodhi who is now the president of the Buddhist Publication Society, who is American. And their commentary are like an interpretation of the actual discourse of the Buddha. <coughs> so as you will look through that catalog, if you're interested, you will see that these are, th- they are not all of them. Some are just uh, expositions by people, what they have understood the Dhamma to be. But others are discourses by the Buddha translated and with commentary. Those are the actual study and learning aspects, which doesn't mean one can't read anything else, but that is what one can actually learn the Dhamma from. One doesn't read a Buddhist discourses like one reads an ordinary book. Ordinary book one reads from beginning to end and goes from one page to the next as much time as one has and wonders what the ending is going to be like. Here we read one page at a time or even one paragraph at a time or if necessary one chapter but that's usually too much already and having read the one page it's very good to make a note in telegram style of the essence of that page and then look at that note and see whether one is actually already practicing that and if not one starts practicing that because the books and the discourses by the Buddha are instruction manuals. And, of course, because of that, they're repetitive, but they're detailed and explicit, and they tell us what to do. And they also tell us the benefits of what we do. So if you look at one page, take the essence out, write it down in your spiritual diary, and then start practicing that. If you're convinced you're already practicing it, start the next page. Don't read masses of information. If one wants to put some of these uh, things together that come in cardboard boxes and they've got detailed instructions on how to put this together, if you read the whole instruction, you haven't got a clue at the end what to do. One's got to read it step by step and then actually do step by step. And this uh, applies to the Buddha's instructions. When one has practiced some of that and reads it then, it's a very interesting aha experience. Because one has done something, and then one sees that the Buddha said just that, but in different words that oneself would have used. But it's a very interesting experience books, tapes, friends. And one of the really important things is the attitude of steadiness. Not one week I'll devote to the Dhamma and one week I'll devote to cycling and the next week I'll devote to having a... um, uh, walking expedition and the next week dumber again (laughs) it doesn't work it's not like that it's got to become part of one's life we all have time to eat we all have time to sleep in fact we get quite um, upset if we don't have enough time to sleep and to eat and to take a shower or bath and if we have time for all that surely we'll have time twice a day to attend to our mind. Mind is a master. That's the first line of the first verse of the Dhammapada, which are verses by the Buddha, which he has given on different occasions. And it starts out, the whole thing starts out with, mind is a master. Whatever we do with our mind, that's what we're going to reap. So meditation is one part of the practice, mindfulness is the other, and then watching thought, watching emotion, and substituting. If you have friends that you can get together with, it's an enormous help. It is so important, it makes all the difference. Being able to change one's thoughts when necessary, and to stop reacting to one's emotions when necessary are the most important and impactful experiences we can have. We don't have to call them anything other than our own self-education. If we look upon life as an adult education class, We're looking at it correctly. That's all it is. Nothing else. If we've ever thought it was something else, maybe by now we've learned better. It's an adult education class where we are constantly getting exams. And the unfortunate part about this kind of college is the fact that they don't tell one ahead of time when the next exam is. (laughs) It takes one always by surprise. One hasn't actually boned up enough. And there it is already, another situation. And the whole thing falls apart. And obviously, since if we don't pass that exam, Well, we have to do what everybody has to do when they go to college or high school or school. If they don't pass the exam, they have to repeat the class. It's exactly the same in our lives. Whatever exams we don't pass, well, they come again. They are in a little different um, shape and form, have a little different name. Instead of being called John, they might be called Jack, but same thing, all over again. And if we pay attention, we'll notice it. We'll notice it, that we've done this already four or five times, and every time with the same result. And then when we see that, we'll recognize it and say, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to do that again. If this happens again, I'm not going to do it again. So we actually practice not to do that again under conditions which are not exam conditions just like we do when we go to school and high school and so forth we don't uh, forget about the whole matter until the exams come about because we couldn't possibly pass them if we hadn't done something meanwhile so in those days when we were doing that we were forced to do it it was compulsion and There was just two ways about it. We simply had to keep learning. This is the same. Every day, a little. And then when the next exam comes, somebody starts being abusive, aggressive, unpleasant. We don't get what we want, or we get exactly what we don't want. We are prepared. We know exactly what to do. We can drop it. We can drop the wanting. And having done that under trying circumstances, we can pat ourselves on the back, there's no harm in that, perfectly all right, and say, well done, I'll do that again next time. We sure mustn't pat ourselves on the back and say, well done, that's it now. (coughs) We've got to keep on doing it. Having passed that exam, of course, we can be sure that we're going to get another one, a new one, not the same one anymore because we've passed that one. We're going to get one which is a little more difficult. And we're going to maybe not pass it because we haven't practiced enough. So then we see this difficult one, we say, now, wait a minute, what is this? Why can't I do that? And we have to practice a little harder. Exam after exam until we can finally pass out completely and don't have to come back. The only time, the only thing is, the only unfortunate thing about it is, they never give the time or the date for them. We have to be on our best um, practice all the time. And we will be if we recognize the difficulties that we get into if we're not prepared. Remember when you were in school and you thought, "Oh well, this is a cinch, I don't have to prepare myself." And then it wasn't a cinch at all. The whole thing just fell over your head and you couldn't do it, and you felt pretty silly not having been prepared. Well, this is the same here. If we look upon our lives as this kind of experience, we're using our life to the best advantage. We can't do anything better. There's a story about the Buddha walking with his monks along the seashore and saying to them, What do you think, monks, if there was a blind turtle swimming in the oceans of the world? And this blind turtle comes up for air once every hundred years. And there's also a wooden yoke swimming in the oceans of the world. Do you think that that blind turtle could put her head through that wooden yoke when she comes up once every hundred years for air? The monk said, no, it's impossible. They couldn't be at the same place at the same time. Buddha said, that's not impossible. It's improbable but it's not impossible. And the same improbability, he said, reigns over. Having a human rebirth with all what